Here we are with another Cosmic Salon, and I have a fantastic guest with me. We have become friends on Instagram of all places, but uh, Jennifer Bruce is her name, and she's been walking this walk with me and others for a very long time. And so it is a great pleasure and honor to welcome you, Jennifer, to the Cosmic Salon. Thank you very much. So let's get started with giving a little bit of a bio, whatever you want. Who are you? What's your background? What's going on, girl? Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. So, yeah, I know it's it's a weird story. So back when I was a little girl, uh, my grandfather was the love of my life. My biological father, although he was present in our home, was basically emotionally absent and so my grandfather was, you know, my world. And when I was 12 years old, I watched him die of pancreatic cancer, which took a, a very short six months to just completely ravage him. And I watched him suffer a lot until he finally passed away. And so as I proceeded with my life and I started getting older, being raised in a typical American household, um, by the time I finished high school, it was not a question of whether I was going to college. I mean, because that was not a choice. Um, it was more about what are you going to study? So there was an enormous amount of pressure for me to to be a pre-med student because my parents wanted me to be a doctor. And for whatever reason, I was very, very clear that that was not my path. And although I started out at San Jose State, I'm a native Californian. I started out in the pre-med department. I, you know, I didn't like what I saw. I saw a lot of cheating a lot of cliques, a lot of uh, small groups forming. And I sort of got the impression really early on that the only thing you really needed to do to get into medical school was be able to memorize a bunch of stuff and regurgitate it later on. And that, to me, didn't really seem beneficial to anyone. So I kind of got this idea in my head that I wanted to make medicine. And so I went ahead and graduated with a degree in biological sciences. And I had, by that point, I had enough credits to have a minor in chemistry as well. And so my first job in industry was a, as a synthetic organic chemist. And I worked at the bench for about four years. During that time, I had my own health crisis, which kind of opened my eyes to the dangers of the allopathic medical model. But from there, I, I pretty much launched into new drug development. And I got out of the lab and started working in the fields of quality assurance, quality control, and regulatory compliance, primarily for new drugs and also for biotechnology products. So I worked on a lot of different vaccine projects as well over the course of my 20 years in industry. So I did spend quite a bit of time. Uh, I had left working in a full-time permanent like job-job situation around 2008, 2010, and started consulting. So that gave me the freedom to only work on projects that I felt were beneficial. And I continued to do that work. And I just kept getting red flags all over the place. By the time I got to 2019, 
I had made the decision that I, you know, I needed to leave this industry altogether. And it was really terrifying. I was divorced. I was single. I didn't know if I'd be able to support myself. How was I going to find work? And so I launched into natural products and lo and behold, I have more work now than I've had in past years. And I actually uh, um, am working with a lot of different types of clients, natural cosmetics and skincare companies. I work for dietary supplement companies. I work for small vendors that are, you know, more like mom and pop shops. I do a lot of work with um, within the Kratom industry, trying to keep Kratom available in the United States and worldwide as well. And so that's pretty much where I am now is basically just working for myself and helping those people that want to make quality products and safe products and, uh, you know, helping to guide them through that process and to help people that have gotten in trouble with the FDA and, and other regulatory bodies um, help them to get out of trouble if they've made some pretty big mistakes along the way, which is, you know, it happens a lot. I want to look here for a second at your grandfather. And yeah. at the age of 12 is such a significant age. It's the beginning of a new chapter, as you know, and a lot of a lot of people relish that age, uh, sometimes 13, but right in that period. And for someone so significant for you to pass in such a way and at this time, so at the time when he got sick, how did you process this? What was your way of finding acceptance in his his passing and the way he passed? Oh. Well, I was always pretty much a loner as a child. So I spent a lot of time outside and I spent a lot of time reading and doing my own art projects. So, you know, primarily I had to process it on my own because the adults in my life weren't able to process it in a very healthy way. And there was almost as if there was an exaggerated sense of loss. Like, I mean, I, I, I hate to say this, but I kind of feel like my mother was digging the attention that was, you know, basically generated around the family that had to do with his sickness and his passing. And so that kind of repulsed me as a child because I felt that it was a very private matter and that it shouldn't be talked about openly, especially with people that weren't part of the family. And I was very protective of my grandfather because, you know, he was losing his dignity. I watched him, I have a photograph of the two of us um, and him wearing his bathrobe and it's Christmas time. And he looks like someone that just got busted out of Auschwitz. I mean, it was, you know, he, he didn't look like the man that had been my grandfather for all those years. And so I was very protective of him. And once he was gone, you know, I played a lot of classical piano. Like I said, I spent a lot of time outdoors and, you know, California, it was always nice weather. So, and I just, you know, did a lot of my own internal reflection. I used to climb trees and just sit in trees and think and talk to the trees. And, and like I said, I, you know, I enjoyed my art projects and, and, and that kind of thing, but it, you know, it left a, a devastating hole in my heart that I didn't know, you know, if I would ever be able to fill. And uh, I did have a visitation from him probably about six to eight months after he passed. I, I awoke in the middle of the night and he was standing at the the edge of my bed. And I remember I'd had visitations before 
not from him, but um, from other entities. But I remember him standing there, and I very excited to see him. And and he was just kind of gushing with love for me. And I was aware that he wasn't actually physically there. And he told me he loved me. And he said, I, I have something very, very important for you to do. And I said, what's that? He said, I need you to tell your grandmother to stop worrying about me and, and to, to let me go. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And I remember that the next time that I saw her, I, I told her that he had come to me. And it was a very emotional meeting between my grandmother and I. And she was really suffering. It was her second marriage. Her first marriage was terribly abusive. And this guy was in and out of her life. And finally, when my mother was about 18, and so I guess they'd been married 18 to 20 years. I, I, I don't know. But he finally, number one was finally out. And it took several years, but she met number two, which was who I consider my grandfather. And so when she lost him, it was a it was a, a big loss for her as well. You know, I remained very, very close to her in, until she passed in 2007. But yeah, my grandmother, my grandpa, grandfather were my two primary sources of love, unconditional love and support and acceptance in, in my childhood. Whereas, you know, my mother and father put an enormous amount of pressure on me to, you know, be this person that they could parade around and get pats on the back, back for whatever it was I was accomplishing. And yeah. there was a whole period of time in my childhood around this time that, that this went on. I was part of a, um, a project that I didn't know was a project, obviously, until years and years and years later. But I was part of the Mentally Gifted Minors program, which was affiliated with my public school that I was in. Um, mm. And I was only in that program for, as far as I know, a year. It could have been a little bit longer. But the, the thing that was really weird about being a part of that program was that I would remember leaving my school to get on the bus to go to this program where I went for an entire day, one, one day out of the week, I would remember leaving for the program. I would remember coming home from the program, but I could remember nothing that happened during the program. Oh my. <laughs> yeah. Until, yeah. Until about, uh, it was probably about two years ago. I started doing some deep internet research and realized that this, you know, this was also known as the, the gate program, the gifted yes. and talented program. Yes. Mine was called mentally gifted minors MGM. Apparently there are quite a few of us that had uh, very similar experiences of having memory wipes and, you know, odd, uh, odd flashbacks. And I, I, I always, whenever I pick up a book, I always read, I always start back to forward. Yes. So I <laughs> everything backwards. Yeah. And I remember them teaching me speed reading. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And making me do puzzles and showing me all these weird images and, yes. you know, giving us these assignments, you know, in a small group, you know, like, okay, we're going to land on the moon. How are you going to set up a community there and survive? And like yes. just weird off the wall stuff. Yeah. That's, yeah. And anyone that has, that knows this, knows this. And we are, there are a lot of us, as you know, from looking, and I think that every story that adds to this is creating more validation for the rest of us that, you know, you feel like you're out in the the winds blowing around and no grounding with some of this stuff, but others experience it. And that's what's great about how this community's uh, come up around trying to remember everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. And then, you know, I went through a period where I was like, well, shoot, was this really my idea to get involved in the pharmaceutical industry or was this implanted in me? Like, yeah. I, you know, I don't know if that's the case either. 
Well, this is why I wanted to go back to your grandfather. That's why I wanted to get back there with your grandfather. This was a major event. And Jennifer, there's something that connects us here besides the programs. So you said this was your grandmother's second husband and he was the, you know, he's the one you love. This is the same. My grandmother's second husband, Bob, was the one I loved. I loved him so much. And I was very young when he died. And I've told this story many times, but a lot of people don't understand how much you can love. Even though he wasn't my blood, he was my grandfather. And nobody showed me love like that man. He gave me, and my other grandfather as well, really good role model examples of great solid men. And I'm forever grateful. And it's a, it's a hard spot in my heart, always thinking about him. And it was a, it was a hard, it was a hard road, his passing for everyone because he was well loved. And this, this is interesting that we share that. I am glad to know someone else out there that has this kind of deep feeling for someone that really wasn't their, their blood. I don't know. I just wanted to put that in there. But so I, when we're talking about the pharmaceutical stuff and we're going to, we're going to dive into that. I want to look at this visitation for a minute as well. So before this visitation, you had mentioned that you had had others. Could you give us a little example of what some of the other visitations you were experiencing? Sure. This was the first visitation that actually happened in my home. So prior to that, um, I started working pretty early as a like a neighborhood babysitter. And so it was quite common during that time that neighbors would go out to party or do whatever they do. And I would go over to their house and hang out with their kids, put them to bed and either read or watch TV for the rest of the evening. And I ended up in this one house that apparently was haunted. And so um, <laughs> the, the way that I the way that I came to find out about this was that the family dog was deaf and she was almost blind. She was really old. And so in the evening times, I would sit downstairs um, in one of these big overstuffed chairs and I would either read or I would watch their television. The dog would be basically laying down very close to where I was. And I would notice the dog perk up and look over towards this big sloping stairway that went up to the second story. I thought, that's weird. The dog can't hear anything. And I look over, and I see this this little figure kind of on the stairs, kind of looking at me, wearing these Wellington boots and kind of this, like, old-world grandma type of, you know, headscarf, uh, this kind of thing. And I wasn't, af- I wasn't afraid, but I acknowledge... Uh, this presence and it would kind of hang around for a little bit and then turn around and go back up the stairs. I didn't think anything of it. I never was freaked out by it. I never said anything to anybody about it. And then I, you know, as, as time went on, I started uh, spending more time in the evenings in the upstairs portion. So I put the kids to bed. There was a long hallway that went down to the master bedroom and I would make myself comfy on, on their bed and you know, if I wanted to watch uh, Fantasy Island or Love Boat, two of my favorite programs. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> or I would read one, of my, read one of my Nancy Drew books because yes, I girl. would laugh through Nancy Drew's. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm on the bed, right? And I get this funny feeling that I'm being watched. And so I look down the hallway 
there she is. And I'm just thinking like, well, first I thought it was the little one of the little kids woken up. And I so I got up to go down to check the bathroom, make sure they were okay. And, you know, nobody was down there and the kids were in their bed sleeping. So anyway, the next day I told my mom, I decided I'm going to tell my mom. I said, yeah, mom, you know, I think uh, I think uh, so-and-so's house is haunted. And she says, well, what are you talking about? And I told her. And she says, well, go get your Ouija board. Because she bought me a Ouija board for like my 10th birthday. Yeah, this is mom. <laughs> so I said, okay, all right, mom. You know, she was the first one. She got me my first deck of tarot cards when I was 13. So I go get the Ouija <laughs> she's board. She's awesome. <laughs> and she's, she's, yeah. So we get, we get out down on the kitchen table, right? My sister, who's two years younger, she comes in. She sees the Ouija board. What are you guys doing? And my mom says, we're, you know, we're, we're doing this. My sister goes, okay, you guys are crazy. I'm leaving. She was terrified of all this stuff. So we bust out the Ouija board, and, and I ask, you know, uh, is there a name to this entity that I'm seeing? And the board spells out H-I-L-D-A, Hilda. Oh, wow. Yeah, so th- thought thought that was. We asked some other questions. That was the only thing that really stuck out to me. And so my mom said, "Let's go take a walk." So we walked down the block, and right next to this house where I babysat was right on the corner. Huge, big, old, gorgeous house from like 1910. You know, Ooh, I love that. I know it's just gorgeous. And so in the house just next door, there's this little old lady out in her yard doing her gardening. Right. And we didn't know those neighbors, but my mom, you know, excuse me, excuse me. And she says, you know, did you know the previous tenant that lived in this house? And the woman said, well, well, why? Yes, I did. She was a very, very good friend of mine. And my mom said, well, can you tell us her name? And she said, of course, her name is Hilda. Oh. <laughs> and so we were like, wow, you know, oh, Jesus. And, that's a hit. Yeah, yeah just, yeah, for, you know, and my, you know, my mom wanted to come down there and babysit with me. I said, mom, she's not going to come out. She, you know, she trusts me. She's good with me being in the house. She likes the family. Nothing ever came of it until about a couple of years later, the family went, went out for the day. So they had a winery in the Santa Cruz Mountains. So they would pack it up and go to Santa Cruz for the day, sometimes spend the night because they had a, a home out there too. But anyway, they left really early, took the kids, and then they came back and the sun was just coming down. And they came back and all the front sprinklers were on. And they thought, well, that's weird. Why are the sprinklers on? So uh, they go to the front door, open the front door, and they walk in. And the parents both have this sense, you know, something's not right. So the husband says, you know, you guys go ahead and wait outside. He goes into the house, goes up the stairs to the right, right where I had seen that apparition. And the door to their office was closed, right? Mm. He opens the door and crouching in the corner is this man who's just absolutely terrified, right? So it was a burglar. So they end up calling the police. And what ended up happening is the guy came in through, you know, he jimmied a back window or something like that, came in through the backyard, made it all the way up into that little room. And now what I had not known was that before it was their office, that had been her sewing room. (laughs) So things, yeah, so things would magically disappear from the house, like scissors and anything related to sewing, and they would appear in this office, right? And nobody could figure out what the hell was going on. So anyway, apparently he goes into this office slash sewing room, and he, according to him, the door closed behind him, and he could not 
get the doorknob to open. And so there was like broken pens and all these weird little things. Like he'd been, have one of those skeleton key locks, right? Where he was trying to unlock the door. But the weird part was, was that the door didn't lock. (laughs) So anyway, he got arrested and carted off to jail. And that was the last like odd thing to have happened in that house. But I remember shit, the woman that I babysit for, as soon as it was all over, she called up my mom. She said, you guys got to get down here. She said, Hilda caught the crook. That's so incredible. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, you know, they, they still live in that home. I mean, it's been like, I don't know, 40 years now. And apparently, you know, Hilda makes an appearance every once in a while, or, you know, a little pair of scissors will go missing, but you know, (laughs) everything's copacetic. It is her house. (laughs) <laughs> it is her house. Yeah, she's there. And she's, you know, she seems to be pretty content with the family. And so they just share that space together. That is an incredible story. I'm, who knew? I didn't know. I'm so happy you've got this bringing, you're bringing this to the table. With that, were you always a sensitive or medium type person? Did you have contact with other dimensions regularly? You know, as a child, um, I had, uh, I suffered from really awful nightmares and nightmares has been an issue for me on and off my entire life. But I remember as a child that when it would rain, I would be so relieved because for whatever reason, I had this idea in my head that if, if it was raining outside that I was safe. And I wouldn't have nightmares when it would rain, but I would go into these and I don't know if I was astral traveling or what I was doing, but I was constantly being chased by what I would now refer to as men in black. I didn't know that when I was a kid, but they'd be these like black, very masculine with piercing red eyes that would chase me all over the place. And I would have these very psychedelic visions, almost like a, like a, a bad acid trip where I would just see all kinds of really, really gruesome stuff. And so, you know, later on when I started studying Buddhism in graduate school, I was like, shoot, am I, you know, was I visiting a hell realm? Like, you know, what was going on? But by the time I was around 13, 14, you know, the push was really on to be, um, you know, successful in academics. I was also at that time playing bagpipes with a local band. So I was doing band competition and solo competition. So if I wasn't studying, I was practicing uh, my bagpipes. And so, you know, basically I just, a lot of that intuitive stuff just got squashed right out of me. You know, I stopped playing, you know, there was kind of almost this forced socialization that went on where I was basically sat down and told, you know, you will have friends, you will be popular. You will do this. So that whole introverted aspect of myself, I went through a profound, profound personality shift, which always really bothered me. But I think that at the time, for me, it was a survival technique because as my parents' marriage progressed, they became more and more unhappy. And my mom, who was in my younger years, you know, she was an art teacher, artistic, cool, woo-woo, witchy. (laughs) She became more and more unhappy in her marriage to my father. And and so our entire family life just became more and more dysfunctional. My dad drinking, having affairs, Uh, traveling all the time. Yeah. So a lot of fighting in the house, a lot of verbal abuse. So, you know, it doesn't leave a lot of room for, um, 
you know, that, that sensitive side of our, I mean, I had to protect myself. It's almost as if, you know, I, I had to put on a suit of armor and wear that around. I kind of lost the ability to communicate with plants and animals and my surroundings. And quite frankly, I wasn't really interested. I mean, I was just like, you know, terrified, like I got to get good grades or I'm going to, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. Okay. So what I'm getting at with that is your developed sense of intuition, which you naturally seem to have had and nobody erased that from you except for yourself pushing towards these, uh, pleasing your parents with the academics and all this. So I, I just wanted to get that out that you are definitely one of those people that's born and was able to maintain your intuition, even if it went into remission. And this thing about the bagpipes, I think I love you. <laughs> I love that pipe so much. I listen to bagpipes a lot. I have a lot of Scottish in me. So the men in black stuff and some of this other stuff, we're going to have another chat on, hopefully. I want to dive into that and everyone will enjoy all that. So moving on with your intuition and when you got into school and had the flip around on what you wanted to do, let's start talking about medical stuff here at this point. Let's look at when you were immersed in the technology of vaccines and viruses and all that. What what can you say just initially on that with your training in that, the protocols, all this kind of stuff? Right now, as we're experiencing all this, it appears that they've thrown all protocols out the window. Oh, yeah. And that drives me crazy. It drives me absolutely crazy. In fact, that's one of the few things people are actually talking about that I, that I can see it basically out there anywhere in the world. Yeah. It's really, you'll hear people say like, oh, it's uh, not approved. Oh, it's experimental. Yeah. Oh, it's, well, in addition, when they put that emergency authorization on the product, one of the things that went right out the window are a set of regulations United States federal regulations that we follow when we are manufacturing product. And, and they're very, very detailed regulations. So there's a lot of structure involved in, in the whole drug development or biologics development. So the development phase all the way through preclinical, clinical development to the point where it's commercialized. But I mean, it's all about checks and balances. It's all about maintaining control. And that's one of the things that freaks me out about all of these products is who's driving the bus, right? Because they basically can do whatever they want. So for instance, like there's a requirement, we, you have a certain uh, protocol for how you make a product. Okay. So you, you'll have what we call a master batch record. So you have a bill of materials, that's your list of ingredients. Then you have your set of instructions. You're going to add this, mix this, heat this, do this, hold this, right? And it's detailed down line by line by line. And these records can be, you know, 500 to 1,000 pages long. They're enormous. And so if you veer, if you don't follow those instructions to the T, you have to fill out, 
you basically have to account for why you didn't do it and do an investigation into what's the potential impact on the product. So, you know, like if there's something on the your ingredient list, let's call it that, we call it a bill of materials, you're not allowed to swap something out for something else. I mean, it's set in stone. So what happens if you run out of a particular excipient or an adjuvant? Well, you, what are you going to do? You can't just swap in something else. Well, if you're under emergency authorization, you can basically do whatever you want. So my, I've always wondered, among the different large corporations that are manufacturing, what types of protocols are they following? Are these products even similar? We have one label, COVID-19 vaccine. Well, but we have all these different manufacturers and who knows what they're making, right? That's so a big deal of, that there's all these different vaxes under COVID-19. What in the hell? Right. And how do we know how do we know that they're even they're even remotely similar to each other? We don't. We don't know anything about these products. None of this information is publicly available. It's all quote unquote proprietary. So people like me who have a background, even medical doctors, have no insight into what is actually happening during the manufacturing process, what's going into this stuff. I mean, we're basically completely in the dark. And to me, I think, you know, that's incredibly frightening. This is the thing. We don't even have to get swept up in any of the woo around this. The regular stuff, the regular protocols, the regular checks and balances, all of that is being, I don't want to go this far, but it seems like it's just been pushed aside because otherwise we'd be following these stringent and very well ironed out protocols to bring something to the field that is actually going to help people. And so that alone seems suspicious. Then the fact that we don't have access to the ingredients on any of these, except for a few, and then some of the people that have gone out there and tested to see what's in them, the independent people. But again, we're in the dark here and we're all being forced into decisions with no real solid information to guide us in whether these decisions are good for us or not. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, you know, it's taken quite a bit of time that's passed since all of this transpired back in what March, April of 2020, that now finally we have people in industry who are starting to sit up and pay attention and speak up because now they're starting to understand, holy cow, this applies to me and my family as well. That's the thing. And it, and it may be too late in the game. Yes. And I am one of those people that just look, looking at it, the numbers they have now with the different ingredients, it looks very dire at this particular point. It looks like we crossed a tipping point. And I think this is going to have significant and that is, there's no way to highlight or underlight and bold that enough effects on the population of the earth. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, back when all of this stuff sort of blew up, so this would be about March, April of 2020, I had actually been living in India and I, uh, I you know, I'd been consulting and working online and I had, uh, I had a significant amount of money um, deposited into my PayPal account by one of my clients. 
And so I had attempted to, I didn't have that auto function turned on where, you know, it hits PayPal and it goes direct to your bank. I had to manually move it. So I logged in to PayPal from India and immediately they lock and suspend my account. So I pick up the phone, I call, talking to this, uh, you know, rep on the phone. He says, uh, ma'am, will you turn your VPN off on your phone? And I said, okay. So I turn it off and he says, ma'am, you're in India. And I said, yes, I am. Is there a problem? And he says, well, you cannot access your PayPal account from outside the United States. So in order to um, enact this transaction, you're going to have to return to the United States. And I was just dumbfounded. I said, well, what if I hadn't planned on ever returning to the United States? And he says, well, too bad. You're going to lose the money. So anyway, long story short, I fly back to the United States and, you know, I already had a really weird feeling that something bad was coming down the pike. I'd started having apocalyptic nightmares back in the beginning of 2019, which is why I left the United States in the first place, because I thought it was just going to be focused on the U.S., not a global Project. A lot of people felt that way, and here we are. Right, so <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting the hell out of here. But anyway, so now, now I'm back. Anyway, uh, one of my old bosses got in touch with me who works for a very reputable consulting firm located in the California Bay Area, and they're, you know, they're global. And she calls me up, and she's a VP, and she's been in the industry 35 years. You know, she's very well-seasoned, very intelligent woman, massively under mind control, as most of them are. But she starts telling me, oh, Jennifer, we've got all this work. We've got so much work, we can't turn it down. We have all these contracts for, you know, manufacture of the PCR test. And um, I stopped her. I said, okay, all right. Yeah. Well, number one, no, I'm not interested, you know. And number two, I said, do you plan on validating those tests? <laughs> and she, she, she kind of is silent. She kind of, you know, I, I can tell I kind of shocked her. And she says to me, she goes, well, she, I, I don't know. We just have the contract to get them made. I said, well, how do you know they work? Hmm. And she, again, she got all flustered with me and she said, Jennifer, and she said, why are you asking all these questions? I said, because this is a very serious situation. I said, because in order to validate the, te- okay, so anyway, I get off the phone with her, right? And I'm so irritated, I'm, you know. So about six months ago, I was so irritated and frustrated because I had not seen anything on LinkedIn. Every colleague that I had spoken to that I'd ever worked with was just completely out to lunch. So I remembered this one guy that I was um, close to. We had worked together at Novartis Vaccines and Diagnostics together on a contract. So this was um, uh, back in 2013, and they had gotten a very significant warning letter from the FDA. That's a very, very big deal. It can shut down your, you know, that entire site. There were five buildings. That was a huge facility um, in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. Anyway, I had been brought on for a specific reason, and then I had a friend who had been brought on, and his he was a subject matter is was is a subject matter expert in test method validation. So we had become buddies over the the time that we had spent there, and I had not been in contact with him. So about six months ago, I I shot him a little email on LinkedIn and said, hey, buddy, how's it going? Would love to have a a phone call with you if you have time. And so he wrote back and said, yeah, absolutely, Jen, anything you need. So I get him on a Skype call, and I just preface the call by just saying, look, you know, we're friends first. Um, You know, I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable or put you on the spot. I'm going to ask you some questions that may be a little bit uncomfortable or difficult. 
And he said, okay, what's going on, Jen? I said, well, what are you doing right now? He says, well, I'm actually uh, no longer a consultant. I took a full-time job with a company that's uh, the corporate headquarters are in China. I'm in a San Francisco location and I am the global head of validation. Mm. Okay. I said, wow, that's great. You know, congratulations. And I said, well, you know, I want to talk about test method validation. (laughs) He said, okay, what's your question? I said, well, in order to validate a test method, we need to have a reference standard, a viable reference standard. He said, yes, that's, that's, you're correct, Jennifer. And I said, okay, so I, I want to ask you some questions about the PCR test silence. He goes, okay, why are we going to go there? I said, look, you know, if you're uncomfortable, if you don't let, let, let me ask the questions. If you don't want to answer them, you don't have to. He says, okay. I said, so in order to validate the PCR test as fit, fit for use to detect COVID-19, we would need to have a reference sample, which would be an actual physical sample isolated from a sick patient, which was purified isolated and characterized in order to validate whether or not this test is fit to detect SARS-CoV-2. He says, yes, Jennifer, you are correct. And I said, but yet on the FDA website, in plain view for anybody that knows how to navigate their website, they are telling us that they do not have this reference sample, that what they are using is a computer-generated model. And he goes, Uh, yeah, Jennifer, you're correct. He says, well, look, what's your point? And I said, look, you know, what's your point? I said, you have three (laughs) children. He says, Jennifer, I have a mortgage to pay. I've got kids that are going to be, you know, going to college someday. And I said, you know, I said, this was at the point where the whole contract tracers are going to come knocking at your door phase of the protocol. I said, what if these guys show up at your house want to test your children with a test that's not even fit for use, and then decide that they need to move them out of your custody into some type of a quarantine hotel or CPS, then what? He says, that's never going to happen. It is never going to happen. Well, (laughs) now we're at the face of the game where all these people who thought, this ain't going to touch me, it's never going to happen, are all sitting up and going, "Uh uh-oh. Yes. This, this could happen. And it is happening. And it's not stopping. And so at least, thank goodness, as I, you know, I, I've never been big on LinkedIn. I've never, basically, I have my qualifications up there, you know, all the colleagues I've ever worked with, because I worked with so many people over the years being a consultant. And now as I'm going through the newsfeed, I am seeing directors, senior directors, executive directors, VPs, MDs, people coming out of the woodwork going, what in the H is going on? And all I got to say is it's about freaking time. It so is. I see it as really positive. The other people that I see who are really on the ball with regards to all of this stuff are the entrepreneurs. Yes. So, and then I see the people, you know, at the manager level and below, you know, the, you know, the people that are, you know, basically 
the you know the foundation of these companies, the foundational people, the janitors, the research associates, the production operators, all these people that make all the money for companies like Pfizer, Merck, and Moderna, and, and um, Novartis. These are all the people that are being told, like, get vaxxed or you're going to lose your job. That's the part for me that is so absolutely tragic because uh, they just don't know any better. We've seen this unfolding, and that's sometimes part of the burden of being someone with a deep intuition because other people that don't have that can't see. And sometimes even if it looks like logical, a a logical unfolding of events would play out, there's still some people don't look that far ahead. And that I think has been part of the problem that got us to this point. I'm happy to see that so many people are starting now, now, that it is coming to everyone's door. (laughs) Now that everyone is getting threatened with their jobs and livelihood and all this other stuff, and on the waves of a new global shutdown that's already started, and I'm only saying this as far as important to knowledge and important to our collective knowledge as we move forward. So important people that know how these systems work, that know how these protocols should be applied and adhered to, these kinds of people like yourself are coming up and saying, we need to look at this now. This is now at the point where it's not just about my own well-being and wellhood. It's about my grandchildren. It's about the human race now. And this is where I wanted to tap into your intuition a little bit before I get into asking some specifics about the tests and the vaccine itself. So you've already given us an idea of where your intuition, how you started to see things that just didn't seem right. And you're in India and then you came here and all that, which was, I didn't know all the drama behind the scenes, but I love your Instagram page. So you're always, we're always kind of going with you somewhere. Anyway, what do you see right now with the trajectory of everything that's on the table? No woo, just what's out there, what's being served to us. Where do you see this headed? Well, um, well, where I see it, <clears throat> we just had a um, an article come out in a Mexican online newspaper. So they're ramping up. I'm in Mexico right now, by the way. So they are ramping up. Uh, the vaccine initiative here in Mexico, because apparently the numbers are really low. And so I think, you know, what I see them turning a focus onto the poorer populations, the uneducated people, the people that are, that don't really have the wherewithal to, or vision to see outside of the narrative, just because they just can't. And then at the same time, I see a lot of very, educated professional people, at least from within my industry, that have some integrity who are standing up and saying, no, this this stops right now. Uh, Dr. Ben Tapper, who I follow on Telegram, just put out a post where he has listed 49 peer-reviewed medical journals. I mean, these are legit published articles, 49 articles on how masks do not work 
and how they are detrimental to our health. 49 different papers. So I think the biggest problem is getting this information out to the general public. And, and then, you know, of course, people are good-hearted, trusting people who don't know any better, who are, are going to look at this information and go, well, why would the government lie to us? Like, you know, why would the news, yeah. why would the newspapers lie to us? Well, it's pretty clear that they are. So I, I see, unfortunately, I think there's going to be, I think we're going to see, we're going to be witness to a, an enormous amount of deaths from those people that have been repeatedly uh, getting tested, which is not safe. And then also the ones have, who have injected themselves with this new uh, technology. You know, there's a couple of different routes that they could go down, but most of the doctors that I've been following, uh, all you have to do is go back over the last two decades and look at all the um, literature on the attempts at, at creating a coronavirus vaccine over the last 18 years. It's not hidden. It's all the information is out there. Every animal trial that they ever uh, that they ever conducted, whether it was rabbits, cats, ferrets, I think there was uh, another animal model that was used. When they were uh, challenged with the naturally occurring coronavirus months after they'd been inoculated, they all died. I don't know what people, how you can't translate that information. Well, if that's what happened to the animals in the course of the non-clinical research or the preclinical research, isn't it interesting that we skipped animal trials this time around? I wonder why. And what do we think is going to happen moving forward? And if they do, if these people are able to continue living, I mean, I would assume that they are all going to be dealing with devastating chronic autoimmune disorders moving forward. Yes. I mean, there's just no doubt in my mind that this, this, whatever, whatever it is that they're putting into people is going to have catastrophic effects on their health. And, and, and of course, to everyone around them that loves them, their friends and family, this is just going to be devastating to, to our species. Yeah, this is a species devastation event. I want to look at the test here for a minute. So let's talk about the test. There's a lot of stuff being said about them and a lot of stuff being said by professionals, as you were just talking about, and more people are coming forward daily. So I'm sure you've seen some of the stuff out there with the like the Morgellons fiber type fibers in them and all this. So I want to get your view on the basic testing and the different types of tests and then the repetition of testing. Okay, so the serology test is interesting, right? So that's a blood test to determine whether or not you have antibodies in your system. Uh, and, I, you know, I, again, we go back to the original, the, the beginning, the beginning. If you don't have a reference standard, I don't know what you're looking for in the test results, Right. Um, if you're looking for this, you know, genetic fragment that they've cooked up on a computer or what. But, you know, I questioned uh, serological testing back around 2014. I was out in Nepal doing expressive arts therapy with trafficking survivors. So it was very intense, very emotional, very traumatic, troubling work. And I was only out there for a short time, three to four weeks, and I flew home through um, Hong Kong, and everybody's got their damn mask on. And apparently there was some type of a, a, an outbreak that was going on. And of course, I question everything now. But anyways, suffice it to say, I got home, and a couple of weeks later, I got deathly ill. 
So they did a blood test on me, and apparently I showed up positive for parvo. And, you know, my parvo. doctor... <laughs> parvo, right, which is a typically an upper respiratory infection that, that dogs deal with. Yeah, well, apparently I have parvo antibodies in my blood. And my doctor says, well, you know, you are, um, you know, you're actively contagious. And I said, what do you mean I'm actively contagious? I have antibodies <laughs> in my blood. That means that, I mean, I could have had it 10 years ago, and it's still in my bloodstream. And I feel fine. There's absolutely... But by the time my results actually came in, I was actually better you know, so um, that whole thing was really weird. So for in, in terms of serology, so to me, it just seems meaningless. Now, the PCR test, you know, the very fact that they would want to stick a swab all the way up to like basically almost touching your brain, like anybody with two brain cells and an IQ above 70 should go, hey, wait a second, that's weird. If this virus is so damn contagious, why can't they just do a swab on the inside of your cheek? Why do I gotta send? Yes. Why do they gotta put this thing all the way up? And they've damaged people. They've actually injured people. I, what would be the point? To me, the point is: is there something in there that they're they're entering into your system? Why else would they do it? It doesn't make. I mean, that's the only thing I can come to. I mean, I think go back and you know read any of the literature from from Dr. Carrie Mullis, who's an absolutely absolute angel. What a beautiful human being who just mysteriously happened to die of, you know, a coronavirus-related pneumonia uh, back in 2019, right before all of this shitstorm blew up. But he was very clear in all the literature, this is not for diagnostic use. This is a research and development tool. It's a tool. It's a tool we use in research. So why on earth are we using it to diagnose people? It makes absolutely no sense to any thinking scientific individual no sense whatsoever that's oh, it's crazy and the whole thing with the anal swab is like i mean what what's that all about i mean are they trying to introduce something into the you know into the large intestine or is this just you know more of this luciferian humiliation ritual stuff that's going on i don't or know both. To me, it's or both absolutely demonic yeah oh yeah absolutely people want definitions for evil you do not have to look far right now no, and we have evidence of people who've submitted some of these tests for analysis. And yes, there's ethylene oxide uh, in the swabs, which is a known carcinogen. Yes, we've had people t- uh, pull the swabs apart under an electron microscope, and it appears that there's uh, morgellons or some type of a, a synthetic biological entity that's in that swab. Yes. And who's overseeing the manufacturing for all these damn tests? Who's re- you know who's reviewing the batch records? Who's releasing this stuff? Who's who's got the bill of materials for? I mean, because they've got to be creating these test kits from scratch. Yeah. So you know, where's the accountability? Where's the oversight? Like the mask we saw being created in India, all on the floor, and <laughs> you know the oh, way. It's- well, and apparently there's ethylene oxide in those as well. <laughs> I just want to read one post to you that I, it's pretty brief, that I found on LinkedIn just a, two days ago. And this guy is, he's from Belgium, and he's got quite an extensive background, and he's currently working at, uh, at the International Multidisciplinary Neuroscience Research Center in Belgium. And this is what he has to say. He said, the COVID-19 chaos The problem today is that a vast number of politicians, scientists, academics, researchers, physicians, and institutions have been seriously compromised. 
They won't dare change the official narrative that has been imposed on its own understanding of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, and treatment on the population. Yet the official narrative is now falling apart, too hasty, and based on an incomplete understanding of SARS-CoV-2. So thank goodness for people like this that are calling this bullshit out because they're popping up all over the place. Yeah, that's incredible. And they can't silence everyone. No, they can't. And this is the thing. And this is where we are now. This is not the time to be quiet. This is definitely, we are past the point where you should be sitting back wondering what's going on. We all see what's going on now. Now we know that something unfavorable to humans on this planet is unfolding right now. It is time to make a stand. I think people, they need to understand that taking a stand requires going inside and getting very quiet, connecting with spirit, connecting with the planet, and just simply asking for guidance. Not everybody needs to get out on the corner with a big sign saying COVID-19 is a hoax. It could be just as much just sitting down with one neighbor over a cup of tea and voicing some simple concerns. We don't have to all be cheerleaders for the cause. And I think, you know, a lot of people in my industry are terrified of losing their jobs, terrified of never working in the industry again, which, you know, I think is great. I think the industry needs to fall apart into pieces anyway. But we can all do a little bit towards helping the people around us in our own special way. And it doesn't have to be flashy. You don't have to start a podcast. You know, you can, it could, you can just be as simple as, you know, walking down the street without wearing a fucking mask. Yes. That's see, you are addressing the fullness of what, what it means to take a stand. Passive resistance is a major stand. And so just by saying, no, I'm not having this, that's a stand. And that's a very dangerous stand right now, as we know, because they're trying to push this onto us. And so by being someone that just stands in your strength of saying, no matter what they come at me with, I see what this is. I know what this is doing by looking around me and seeing how it's affecting other people all over the world. And I'm not having it. That's a stand. And as you said, talking to a neighbor or walking down the street with no mask, that's a stand. Absolutely. You don't have to be fighting on a front line, you know, in the street. I wouldn't do that. That's not my thing. I leave that to those people. And not everyone needs to be out blaring on a podcast. I agree. There are so many layers to how we can overcome this and not everyone needs to be in the band. We need everyone on board now. And the thing that is guiding us is our questioning the narrative. And when we have people like you and all these other wonderful people that know what's going on as far as protocols and what is unusual going on here, what's being pushed aside, having been in this business and saying, question this, stand up, look and do some research uh, because these things aren't right. This is a big deal. That's a stand. Also, when we're talking about these tests, so just the one alone sounds terrible. I would, I can't imagine. And I had the opportunity to have a mask from the court system here. There was a, a, 
a person I know that had jury duty and he brought me his mask and I looked at it under magnification and as an artist I have really great magnification but I actually only I didn't even need any of that I just used my jeweler's loop and there were moving particles in there that looked like white fiber and there were black particles and I put took a video it's I think it's on Instagram I actually I think Instagram took it down they've taken down like seven of my videos recently so when we're looking at just one of those how many times like what's a payload here, Jennifer? Like how many times can this stuff be inserted into you? At what point is that alone crazy, this kind of testing repetitively? Well, you know, what they were saying, you know, back in the beginning was, uh, uh, you know, in a lot of the conspiracy theory circles where they were saying that, you know, the, the, the test is the vaccine. So that was something that I was always... Uh, you know, on my mind was, okay, if they are going to assume that a large percentage of the population is not going to take the backs because, uh, you know, I heard, I can't remember where now, but I did hear in one video or podcast that, you know, they've, they've been trying to roll this out for quite some time. And, and basically the flu shot was supposed to be the thing. And apparently, you know, a lot of people were like, no, we're not doing it. So, if they were to anticipate that a lot of people, there was going to be vaccine hesitancy or resistance, it is quite possible that, you know, that's why, why there's such an emphasis on testing, not to mention the fact that they're making shit tons of money, right? Because, oh yeah. Oh yeah. All the manufacture of all this additional PPE, personal protective equipment, the masks, the gloves, all that stuff, the stupid hand sanitizers. Uh, and then the, you know, the, the tests, they're not, it's not cheap, you know, so somebody's making bank, Oh yeah, um, you know. <laughs> in addition to the vaccines, which you know is is highway robbery as well. But yeah, but all this, all these PCR tests, um, yeah, somebody somebody's profiting greatly from this. And you know, and again, uh, if you know if it is as effective or it, it contains similar ingredients to what's in the injection, then you know, bingo for them. You know, great. I, I've never been tested. I would absolutely refuse to be tested. And, Same here. Uh, you know, I, I left the allopathic medical model behind personally back around the age of 24 because, you know, one of my doctors almost killed me. Yeah. Same here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. They just go on their tests. We could go off on that for a whole other show. So I want to move from the test and my stomach sinks every time I hear one of my friends getting a test because they have to because of their jobs. This is the thing. Everyone's experiencing some level of devastation through this. And a lot of us that are seeing it pretty clearly are experiencing a greater level of devastation because we're seeing actually how, dare I say, evil this is. Uh, and it really, truly is evil. I want to get something cleared up here. Gene therapy, the Pfizer jab, What's going on with that? I've read so many papers in journals, from journals, listened to so many amazing medical people in the field, and I keep hearing that. And I took it on good faith from some of these people that that's what it is, that it's specifically the Pfizer one. And then I think it was, I don't know, recently somebody corrected me and said it it's not. And so this person's not a medical 
professional. So what's going on? Let's look at the Pfizer. What do you know here? Okay, well, I mean, I don't know much about the Pfizer because I haven't really looked into it. The one thing that piqued my curiosity was the fact that Moderna referred to their product on their website as an operating system. So that really got my attention because, you know, it's really clear and it's all over, um, all over, uh, you know, platforms like LinkedIn where we have professionals saying, look, this is not a vaccine. Okay. So let's get clear. It's not. Okay. So then we need to ask questions. Is it a gene therapy drug? Because that's what a lot of people have been proposing that it is. And I suppose it could be, but to me, what I was thinking when all of this was coming, coming down was to me, it's, I said, you know what, this sounds to me like a medical device, you know, nanotechnology, microscopic devices that are being implanted, or a new category that relatively, I think this came up around 2017, 2018 during what I was consulting was there was a new regulation that came out on software as a medical device. Oh and it's called SAMD is the abbreviation, software as a medical device. And so what it sounds like to me, what they are injecting people with is some type of a code, which is basically going in and overwriting their organic human genome so that what we're seeing at least uh, in the, I've seen a couple of uh, articles regarding autopsies of patients who have died post Pfizer vaccination, who apparently died of COVID. And that what they found were that these spike proteins are literally in every organ within their bodies. So that this, this, whatever it is that they're injecting into the system is basically replicating at the speed of light and is just overtaking all of their systems, their central nervous system, endocrine system, skeletal system, you name it. And one of the ways that they get to say, oh, these adverse events or these serious adverse events are not related because we've got to look at the, at the, at the human vessel I'm going to have weaknesses in my vessel that are going to be different from yours. You know, so I was talking to a couple of my Kratom clients who are wide awake. And I said, look, take, for instance, you know, you've got a cardiac issue. I've, uh, you know, I've got a pre-existing asthmatic or breathing issue. And then we've got somebody over here who's got central nervous issues, central nervous system issues. We all go through our double rounds one guy drops dead of a heart attack. The other one goes into paralysis, loses all functionality, and you know I can't, I can no longer breathe, and I expire. Right? So they'll say, "Oh, well, those three events are not related at all." Well, yes, they are, because this product is basically once it goes into the system, it's targeting all those areas of the system that are already compromised. And the reality of the situation is, most people in the United States walking around don't realize that they are functioning at maybe 40 to 50% of their actual capacity. They are sick and they don't even know it because of the nutrition they put in their bodies, the garbage they put in their minds, the stuff they're spraying in the skies. I mean, basically our water, our air supply, our food, everything is polluted. And then on top of that, you got people polluting their consciousness by, yes. you know, Netflix and, and mainstream movies and you know, social media. So we are, as, as a species, we are not well. 
And the people that are actually really healthy are like the people here on the floor and on the ground in Mexico and the people in India. They cook their food from scratch. Yeah. A lot of them don't have refrigeration, so they don't get to store food. You know, they they eat locally. They eat sustainably. They, you know, they drink raw milk. You know, they have they they eat meat that it's not loaded with antibiotics and, and all kinds of other garbage. You know, so these are going to be the people that are going to be really hard to exterminate because they're actually pretty healthy. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you look in the more westernized countries, these people are actually quite ill and they just, you know, they're running on coffee. Yes. They're running on caffeine drinks. They're basically, you know, a lot of them are on multiple prescriptions, whether they're for mental health issues or blood pressure or, you know, some other crazy thing. I mean, there's no reason why any... I'm not anti-pharma at all. I mean, and I think if somebody's in a crisis, you know, taking a prescription to get you through that crisis is absolutely essential. But do you want, I, I don't want to be on antidepressants for the rest of my life. I'd rather get down <laughs> to the root cause and fix it. Yes. And, you know? well, and that's what we see. And that's part of what happened in our lifetimes really was with the growth of big pharma and how that's how the engine keeps going. And so they want you on those until you die and every side symptom, you know, with another pill. And so it's created this gigantic people eating monster. And that's another subject, but here we are with this. And so with the Moderna, what, what do you have to say in the Moderna that you haven't said already? Well, I mean, number one, they have never, ever brought a drug to the commercial marketplace, which in the, in all the time that they've been in existence, which to me is extremely, uh, which is a, is cause for huge concern. I, I don't know why anyone would take a product that, they, that they're manufacturing. I mean, in my short career of, you know, 20 plus years, I brought two drugs to the market, two in small virtual companies that were later acquired by larger companies, but it's not that difficult. So I don't, you know, who are these people? Apparently they originally started out as a chemotherapy mm-hmm. company, but the, you know, the fact that they're, uh, you know, that they can't, which is also it, poison. They can't even bring it. Yeah, of course it's a poison. Yeah. I mean, that's how these people make their money is, you know, the, most of this stuff is poison, but you know, or, you know, on the, on the flip side, take a look at Pfizer's history. I mean, would you ever take a product manufactured by them if you've gone through and looked at the billions and billions of dollars they've had to pay out for for injuries and hell deaths? no, yeah, it's shady as hell. It's shady AF. So and J and J. I mean, come on, you know the whole fiasco oh, with my the God. asbestos and the baby powder. Yeah, and yeah, bear. F you. I, I mean, I wouldn't take a product made by. And you know, the thing is, I, I uh, back in. Uh, back in twenty early twenty twenty, I made a I made a video for for my little itty bitty YouTube channel where every year I would look at the FDA stats on uh, for the previous year on you know how many warning letters were issued, what are the trends, what do we see, and at that point in twenty twenty, and you got to kind of stop the you know, you, you can't really go any further than that because COVID screwed everything up in terms of how FDA functions. But up until that point, if you went backwards from 2020, five years backwards, and you looked at the number of citations and warning letters, and we're talking globally, this isn't just the United States, 
the number one violation that was being cited across the board is for something that we call data integrity. And what we what data integrity is, is all your documentation, all your records. So we're talking falsified records. We're talking missing or destroyed records. And over the over the five years that I, you know, I did this backwards dive, we have a 65% increase in data integrity violations. Now, to me, that just equals a crisis in personal integrity. Because if you're working for a company that's asking you to falsify data, that's asking you to hide uh, information, to destroy documents, you know, I don't care if you're worried about losing your job, you need to walk away. You know, like I said, people are terrified and they won't do it. But, you know, the industry in and of itself it was just basically, you know, heading for complete implosion. When you've got a 65% increase in people doing the wrong thing, you got a big problem. Yes. Oh my God. Talk about systemic. Yeah, totally systemic. And it's your, and you know, this is how people get bonuses. This is how you get promotions. You basically, you know, you're selling your soul to whoever to advance one more tier up the ladder. It's evil, basically. I want to go kind of a little bit into the woo here because none of this has been woo. Absolutely none of it. When you look at all of this that we've talked about and all this that we can see being played out from the lockdowns to the masking, all this getting everyone to bend the knee one way or another, and with the potential of wiping out the race that has been unleashed on us through these therapies. It seems to me, if you're the one doing this, and this could run through the population, it would, of course, affect you, right? So that doesn't seem logical to me. What seems logical to me is that there is either a way... Whomever, whatever, they, it, the people are that are actually behind this. Because one of the things we have to take note of in this whole process is the world came together on this. That all the governments have a couple, you know, there have been some wonderful rebellions against this globalization effort with this. And I am so proud of those countries. However, in general, all the major players, it seems, have come together and countries that on the surface don't get along. And so it begs the question, who's behind all of this? We've seen figures step forward, Klaus Schwab, you know, king of the world, Gil Bates, <laughs> Bill Gates, and and others. And so I can't help but find myself thinking about, I know they don't want to go out this way. So either they are behind this, they have some protocol that protects them from it, or they are something else, and this does not affect them at all. Well, funny that you should mention that, and that's probably a topic for an entire different discussion. It was really, really close to the time that all this stuff started coming down. I stumbled upon the lecture series entitled The Fall of the Spirits of Darkness by Rudolf Steiner. And I started reading all of those. And if you go into that material, 
He actually, back in 1917, in one of the lectures, I can't remember the title of it now, I can dig it up and, and send it to you. Um, he basically you. predicted that a vaccine would be created that would remove any spiritual inclinations from man and that it wasn't that far off. And so I honestly do believe that, you know, from a woo perspective, that we're talking about something much bigger and possibly not even human. Yes, that's that's absolutely what I see for sure. Is and, a, is and a, what I feel, I spent several years as an active member of um, George Cavasilis's community. I don't know if you're familiar with George's work. I'm not sure right off the top of my head, no. Okay. So anyway, it's very woo. I was drawn to his work because he was offering a workshop called Transcending the God Matrix. And so I read his book and got involved in his community. And so one of the things that he was primarily focusing on his work with us was that there is actually a battle going on over the um, ownership of this planet Right. And so we have different entities. So as he was explaining it to us, which resonates with me quite deeply, is that as ourselves, as me in this physical body, right, Jennifer, little Jennifer, through my own intuition and through my own my own practice of prayer and meditation, I have that access to my own greater being. And then from there from that channel, from, from myself to my own greater being, I can continue upwards to the source of, of all creation, Yes, the universal creator. Now, as I understood it from how George was teaching, that at some point an entity came in into, into the realm and appointed uh, itself the god of religions, and this is where religion stems from. So this god of religions is not the true creator, but uh, an entity that's trying to claim ownership over over our, our planet and our species. And at the same time, we have another very dark character who is at battle with this god of religions, and that would be the AI god. So Yes. And then we also have this dark New Age, false white light spirituality. Yes coming in that's also at play. So it would seem that, that, you know, we have our own battle here on the ground on planet Earth, and there is also a lot going on uh, interdimensionally that a lot of people just do not have the capacity to be aware of. And those of us that are aware, I, I mean, I still find it very confusing, you know, so I'm still working with, you know, what in the H is going on around here? So, for instance, like when we talk about things like controlled opposition, well, what's that all about? Now we have all these doctors that are speaking up and they don't all have this in common, but there's a hand, a small subset, a handful of them that all seem to have been affiliated with Louise Hayes movement at some point. And so for me, that indicates that, you know, false white light, you know, new agey movement, yeah. which is part of that God of religions character. And then we have this AI or harmonic or metal God, which I think has a lot to do with the graphene oxide and the, yes. nano, the nanotech that is being sprayed all over the planet and put in our food and injected into our bodies. So there's something much, much deeper going on 
that really deserves some investigation. And thank you to Rudolf Steiner for opening my eyes to this uh, in the first place. His work is actually quite brilliant for people that have the patience to read through these, um, these lectures. Most of them are actually in audio form now, so it's easier for people. But, you know, some of them are like nine hours. This is what I see, and it's part of why I came forward five years ago out of my lovely isolation that I enjoy. I saw this coming down the line. I've done all those videos and talked about it, and here we are. And I do believe we're deep in a war and I'm sure you know this already, that I've been saying this, that we are deep in a war and people cannot see this because one of the factors in what I'm observing, and we talked about this a little bit, is that whatever these tests and vaccines are administering into the human body, they are definitely detaching people from this. Their their deep intuition from the spiritual inclination of the gift that we have here, which is our soul, our spirit soul. And it is, as I, I've always seen this so clearly, that is the gold in this realm. It is a precious thing and we house this this is our little light and just like a terrible con artist at a sideshow whomever is behind this whatever is behind this is trying to separate us from our gold and tear up our temples our bodies okay so jennifer you had mentioned these nightmares you've had nightmares your whole life and one of the things I understand about nightmares is they bring you into lucidity. That's the one of the great functions in, in night terrors and nightmares. And there is a, a function there that serves that purpose. And so, yes, there are all the different layers of psyche stuff with your psyche, you know, working through your complexes and all this. But then there is also real information that comes through. And for people like you, definitely these are narratives to be looked at and paid attention to. So you had mentioned earlier a nightmare you had before all this or during the beginning of all this. And I can't remember, did you mention, it It sounded gruesome, like zombies or some of that. What was that? It'll be like I'm in a lucid dream. Right. So it's it's like like I think I'm awake. I think things are normal. And then I'll be in a, a either a familiar environment or a not so familiar environment where the environment around me will start to deteriorate. So if I'm interacting with people like I'll start to drop things out of my handbag or if I'm holding a plate, I'll drop it and it'll crash on the floor and then I'll start bumping into people or knocking things over. And it, then it progressively gets to the point where these other beings that I'm interacting with in the dream become very hostile towards me and basically try to physically harm me, either, you know, cutting me, implanting me, um, laughing, humiliating me, just doing these things to me. And if I try and physically resist it's almost as if I'm in a state of paralysis and I'm not able to physically take them on. In my practice of, of having these nightmares, one of the tools that I've started to use is to use my, kind of like my mind's eye, to communicate with them almost on a telepathic 
level to say, you know, you can hurt me. You can, you know, whatever it is you want, you can't stop me. You cannot stop me. And this seems to just really, really aggravate them to the point where, you know, hopefully I wake myself up and the dream is over. Many times I'll go right back to sleep and it'll pick up right where it left off. So what I've come to understand over the last two years as I've been, you know, these nightmares have been ramping up in adulthood, which are just extensions of what was going on in childhood, I feel that I'm getting a very clear message from some form of entity, whether it's in the astral or in some other dimensional realm, I don't know, where I am, they are attempting to silence me or attempting to keep me in that wavelength where I'm questioning myself, my self-confidence is low, where, you know, three years ago, I would never have been able to do this, this interview with you. I would have been like, oh no, I don't have anything to offer, you know, and that's where they want me. That's where they want (laughs) all of us who are intuitive, who are psychic, who are connected to the planet, who are connected to our own greater beings. They do not want us interfering with their program. And that's exactly what I've started to do now over the last two years. And, you know, so I feel like there's a lot of desperation and fury on their part. And now, you know, I know from experience, they can't kill me. If they, if they were going to kill me, they would have killed me and they have. Yes. So they can go ahead and torture the crap out of me while I'm sleeping. I mean, it's uncomfortable as all get out. I've had like giant antique stoves. Like there was this one female character that would lift furniture and hurl it towards me. You know, I've lost limbs. I've seen images like of war and carnage, like things that I could not possibly imagine. So is it past life recollection? Possibly. Is it remnants of a, of a past spiritual war uh, or something that's gone on in a different dimension could be, I don't know. I pretty much approach everything with an open mind, even the Q stuff. When that came out, I didn't buy it, but I listened to quite a bit yes. of information around it because it made me curious. I mean, I'm just a curious person and I want to know, okay, what are people thinking? What are they putting their attention on? And I want the opportunity to feel into myself. Does this resonate or not? And why? Yes. You know, and at the same time, over the course of my life, I've been duped by a lot of, you know, programs or, you know, I fell into the whole new age, false white light thing, you know, and was meditating, you know, hours and hours on end and basically just bypassing my life away. (laughs) But this is part of the journey, right? And, you know, you wake up and you go, oh, okay, that's not working. I I think I'll try something different. Right. Next. (laughs) Next. Yeah. But, you know, as far as the nightmares and, you know, lately, uh, since I've started to get more vocal and started to take action and take more risks and, and have lost an enormous part of my, um, you know, my network, uh, because, you know, I've been labeled a conspiracy theorist and a quack and all kinds of other stuff. Um, it's okay. It's okay with me. Yeah. And, and so, you know, they're basically losing traction in terms of, you know, how they can either frighten or intimidate me because as I said, you know, they can't kill me. So, um, you know, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And, uh, and I think, you know, I was my generation, I'm 53 right now. You know, I was raised in that entire, you know, that entire generation that I come out of what I see happening right now is everybody 
is suffering from a tremendous trip on codependency, right? Yes. we got to take care of everybody else. I'm wearing this mask so you feel comfortable. You know, and it's complete bullshit. You know, more people die from codependency than they do from addiction. Anybody that's been to rehab knows that. Yep. And, 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 you know, I was, uh, you know, I was a bona fide A++ people pleaser, exactly the kind of woman that my mom wanted me to be. And when all this shit hit the fan, those 5,000 friends on Facebook, <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, there were about 10 of them left. And I went, wow, I've been surrounded yes. by a bunch of people that have never seen me, never understood me never appreciated me for who I truly am. They've fallen in love with that image that, you know, that I've been promoting of myself unconsciously because, you know, that was my way of surviving my childhood. And guess what? I don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. Because you know, if I have three good friends on my side, I'm golden. Yes. You know, the rest of you guys can jump off a bridge. Go, you know. <laughs> I loved when I loved when Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, this was about uh, maybe six to eight months ago, she just said, look, people, anybody that's running for the edge of the cliff, get out of their way. <laughs> yes. Get out of their way. <laughs> it is not your job to save anybody, to educate anybody, to help anybody see the light. You know, do your work and be a living example of what that looks like. And if you can inspire people that way, you're doing them a much greater service. Yes. We are stars in the sky. And our light hopefully shines for some to see. This is an, a remarkable chat. I don't even I don't even want to call it a chat. Uh, this was a deeply, deeply spiritual experience for me, connecting with you at this level here. Because, like I, you know, you've been listening along, and I've been following you, and I feel a, a deep sense of gratitude and a little bit emotional at this moment. I'm so glad that you have come to listen to that light and stand up in your life and in the world as a beacon. And we are all here together, standing. So if we're ten, we're ten. We're ten strong beacons. We're ten strong lights. And it's never been about mass, you know? We're not cancer. <laughs> and so, thank you. Jennifer Bruce, how do people find you in the world if you want them to? Well, I am still somewhat active on Instagram, and my handle on Instagram is the real sunrise ruby. So that's the underscore real underscore sunrise ruby, one word. I'm also on LinkedIn with my birth name, Jennifer Bruce. And although there are quite a few Jennifer Bruce's, I think I am the only one who you'll find that has uh, an extensive background in pharmaceuticals and biologics, quality systems, and and that kind of thing. I don't have a website at the moment, anything like that. I do have an email. It is Jennifer Bruce, all one word, with the letters G is in George, X is in X-ray, P is in Peter at gmail.com. If anybody would like to shoot me an email, that's perfectly okay too. And those are the, the main ways of reaching me. Do you still have your YouTube channel? I just recently moved everything over to Odyssey. Oh, good for you. And I can send you a link to that. I've just started to get back active on that. 
I was making videos in the beginning, kind of like uh, montages in iMovie. Yeah. And then also I would download and save videos that I thought were pertinent. And then I would basically mirror them on my channel. So I can give you the information for my Odyssey channel. Okay, excellent. Well, this will all be in the show notes. And we, you are coming back, and I can't wait for more conversations with you, Jennifer. Thank you so much for coming to the Cosmic oh, thank Salon. Thank you. I've really, I've, it's, an honor to, it's an honor to share with you this experience. We're in this together. Absolutely. There she goes. The wonderful Jennifer Bruce. This was a compelling show, and Jennifer has agreed to come back. In fact, we're going to be recording, I think, this Friday. So just look for more, and I hope that other people listening with platforms that are congruent with this, with Jennifer's message, reach out and touch her in a way to interview her. She's easy to chat with and everything she is talking about is pertinent prescient and relevant very important messaging here so with that I want to thank the producers of this show Christy Tesmer Marin Kramer Jason Lamson Marcy Shapiro Melanie Poe Michael Wachter and Santa Rebecca This has been a compelling time. And we need to push into the energy so that we know the energy, so that we feel the energy, so that we understand the energy. Dream yourself awake. Dream yourself alive. Dream yourself aware. Thank you for coming to the Cosmic Salon and spending time with me. Nish.